Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Hopefully we gain some listeners from it and we start maybe changing a little bit of perspective. Yeah, and, you know, it's not going to be all about... Hey, how how you've been doing is wrong. You know, we're yeah. gonna have some fun with it too. Yeah. I'm gonna in hunting season we're gonna talk about hunting and fishing season, we're gonna talk about fishing. When we're cooking, we're gonna talk about cooking. Welcome back everyone to the Conservation Unfiltered Podcast, presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and today is episode number fifty-seven, a must listen podcast. On today's episode, I have Ryan Fior who is the host of the brand new podcast, the Ryan Fjord Podcast. Ryan is a former pro archer. He's a former archery shop owner. He's an avid hunter, and he's worked in the conservation field. He is an absolute wealth of knowledge. Uh, We talked for over an hour before we even recorded the podcast, and I'm just blown away by the things he knows uh, and some of his ideas behind conservation, behind hunting, uh, behind just the whole the industry as a whole it, it is absolutely awesome i can't wait uh, to listen to the episodes that he has planned he already dropped his first episode which is a combo to this episode so basically what we're going to be talking about today is what he plans on talking about in his podcast and from what he told me before we started recording he's going to have some awesome guests on he's going to be just putting out his knowledge to everyone, which is without a doubt a must listen to. I don't care if you're a hunter, you're a non-hunter, you should definitely be interested in listening to this podcast because it is going to provide you with so much knowledge about the industry and the sort of general world, outdoor world. It's really going to be awesome. I really can't say enough how much, how excited I am to be able to listen to him uh, on a weekly or semi-weekly basis uh, just to hear his knowledge and, and his thoughts on everything. So enough of me talking. Let's get into us talking a little bit about what, uh, you know, some of his knowledge, some of his background, and also what he plans to showcase with his podcast that you can now start to go listen to. about a name that's been butchered my whole life it's fur i've been called everything fur uh, <laughs> but so it's fewer f-u-r-r-e-r but used to be spelled f-u-h-r-e-r so german um and my grandfather fought in world war ii kind of a cool story that has nothing to do with our podcast but um when he came back from the war he changed his name because he couldn't get a job mm. uh, because f-u-h-r-e-r is associated with hitler mm-hmm. um a lot of people think it means Hitler, and I may be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure it means leader in German, something exactly. like that. Yep. yep. Uh, so, you know, so anyway, he changed it. So there's part of our family that have the F-U-H-R-E-R. They changed it back years ago, and we never have. So we're still F-U-R-R-E-R, which fur. <laughs> I, I love hearing stories like that. Um, you know, just with my last name, Creighton, uh, I actually live right across the river from – 
a town called Creighton. Oh. But they're spelled So they think you own the town? Well, they're spelled differently. So, okay. like, every time I say my name, they want to put an E in there, but there's no E in there. Oh. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's just, it's interesting uh, as former immigrants, you know, immigrant families changing names. And in your case, you know, so, so grandpa can get a job after the war. That, yeah. that makes that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, kind of crazy how that works out. Yeah. So you're starting a new podcast. I want to I want to talk about that. What what is the name of this podcast going to be? <laughs> That's another funny one, man. Um I wanted to be like really cool and savvy and come up with like the ultimate name and um that didn't work out. So I ended up with the Ryan Fewer podcast. Nice. Yeah. So I'm not cool and savvy at big, all. Big picture of your <laughs> face <laughs> for the podcast art? I've not got that far yet. <laughs> um but it most likely will be something like a stick figure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like, you know, the, the simple term, keep it simple or whatever, keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. That's more, yeah, the more effort I put into stuff, the less likely it is to happen. <laughs> <It seems> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, like with mine, the original artwork that I did, I spent hours making this picture that I took in Montana, like look real good with yeah. the text and everything, and then uh, posted the first episode and that wee little box on your phone that shows up with the artwork. It was like, you can't even read it, you right? Know? And uh, I ended up just having a high school graphic design student was like, "Here, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Do whatever you think would look good." It was like, took her, I think, 20 minutes. Yeah, you need to send that person <laughs> my way. Um, and I've been my whole life. I've been so envious of those types of people that like just can put stuff on paper, like an image on paper or a thought on paper, and there it is. Like people who write music, I yeah. could. You would literally could hold me hostage and tell me the only way you can get out of here is if you write song lyrics. And I was like, well, I guess I'll be here for the rest of yeah. my life because I cannot do that stuff. I, I, I'm just I, not like that. I wish I had a creative mind. Uh, I, d- I feel like I do in some aspects, but as far as anything truly creative, no, I, I, I got nothing going for me. Yeah, that's how I have nothing like that. I didn't even know it was called a creative mind. That's how bad I am. So. <laughs> So what is, uh, I mean, we've been talking for probably an hour now just before we started recording, and and you got ideas and thoughts just going crazy out of your mind. I mean, what are we we talking about on this podcast of yours? Uh, Man, that's the thing. So everybody tells me you should, you know, focus on one thing, and I've never been good at that. So um, my podcast is probably going to focus on, more than one thing in the beginning, at least, until we kind of narrow it down. But <coughs> at the end of the day, you know, I think I told you this before, uh, I'm full of useless information, as my mother used to say when I was growing up. So, And I like to talk. So it's like, why not? Let's just talk about a lot of useless information. But I'm kind of joking. Focused around you know, anybody that knows me uh, and knows some of my past, it's been all things outdoors. So we're going to do a lot of stuff, all things outdoors, hunting, fishing. Uh, probably the biggest thing for me is the hunter recruitment or uh, the decline in hunter numbers. It's very important to me. Being from Pennsylvania, you're from Pennsylvania as well, knowing that uh, in the last 10 years we've lost 30% of license sales. Um, and it's not from a business perspective you look at, although you can look at it that way because there's a lot of downside from a business perspective, but to me, having young children, seeing other young children, not being able to grow up the way I did is really important to me. Um, it, hunting in the outdoors, uh, I guess, was like 
just my space. My, you know, it was just a really neat thing for me to be able to enjoy that. And I feel that a lot of today's, and I won't even say youth, a lot of people today are missing out on that. Um, and it's just something that, again, my non-creative mind can't explain uh, how important that was to me growing up or even as an adult. And I think some other people should be able to enjoy that. So I've, I've been afforded a pretty cool life because of having that background or that history and just have rolled that into, you know, jobs, careers, however you want to look at it from the archery side to I owned a pro shop for 10 years, <coughs> uh, working for QDMA for 10 years. Um, you know, I just kind of want other people to be able to enjoy that. So the hunter recruitment is going to be a big focus of mine. Uh, it's going to be a lot of discussion on the challenges of bringing new people to our sport, and it's not just necessarily kids, but it, as we talked earlier, uh, first-time adult onset hunters, mm -hmm. you know, the mid-40-somethings that are sitting behind a, a desk somewhere that have never hunted. And, you know, maybe they want to. And, you know, we talked. It's an intimidating thing to, to just pick up on your own, especially as a mid-40-something, like, right. and call one of your buddies, like, hey, you want to take me hunting this week? You know, like, yeah. Guys are egotistical, oh, you know, exactly. they're not going to do that. You know, they're not going to ask for help, right? No. But if you offer help, most of the time they'll take it. So talking about those challenges, along with kids, I have three kids, uh, a 13-year-old and three-year-old twins, and the challenges of raising kids today and trying to get them involved in the outdoors and keep them involved in the outdoors uh, with all the other things that are going on in kids' lives, you know. So that presents a lot of challenges. Um, that's going to be an another big focus. But at the same time, keeping it fun. Um, I have some really cool guests lined up, uh, just everyday average Joes, mom and dads that, you know, struggle with the same things that I'm talking about, keeping their kids involved in the outdoors. My 13-year-old, um, he's not a big hunter. He's just not uh, – at this point in his life. Maybe he will be, maybe not. I mean, he hunts some. Certainly not like me, right? So I kind of wonder, where did I go wrong? <laughs> you know, what did <laughs> I do? You know, no. I mean, honestly, I, I told him one time, because he, he said something to me that was pretty, it, it hit pretty hard. He said, Dad, you know, I'm just not like you when it comes to hunting. And uh, I was like, wow, I had to think about that. And, you know, he followed up with, like, I don't want you to be disappointed in me. And then I was like, wow, he thinks I'm disappointed, you know. Mm -hmm. So what am I what am I doing here? <clears throat> and it's almost like, look, uh, uh, you know, I'm almost happy you're not like me because. <laughs> <laughs> My dad know. tells me all the time, I, I want you to be better yeah, th yeah. than me. Yeah. So, so I, I certainly want to support that. He, you don't have to be, but you have to also understand it. Um, so. I know that there are a lot of friends of mine, just in the a little bit of research I've done, you know, a lot of people struggle with that in today's day and age on trying to be true to yourself and raise your kids the way you were raised. We all want to do that, but times have changed so much. It just doesn't allow it. Um, so how you balance that, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of information out there that people can share. And that's, you know, I kind of want to have that open dialogue with the listeners that I reach out to, you know, share some of their ideas because man i certainly don't know it all uh, especially as a parent man like <laughs> that is a working document for sure like oh, it yeah. changes every day so and then i have like i mentioned three-year-old twins um boy girl twin and you know it looks like 
especially the boy, he's all about, like just this morning, he overheard his mother and I talking about fishing. And it was by no means were we going fishing today, but he was like, are we going fishing today? And he had this look on his face like, let's go, you know. <laughs> so crazy how you can have three children under the same roof. Uh, obviously, you know, me as a parent and all three of them have different perspectives or you know, different interest levels in the outdoors. So that's going to be a big focus. Um, the food component, you know, I've said this a lot of times, even though you don't like to hunt or fish or do things outdoorsy, there's not a lot of people that don't like to eat. <laughs> no. And so, um, you know, it doesn't have to be wild game, but, you know, if you get around a group of people and you have some good wild game, uh, or good food in general, they'll most likely try it. You know, if it's not wild game, that's fine. But if they're in that same circle, and I have experienced this where people are very turned off by wild game because of the killing aspect, but they'll eat a th- you know, beef or they'll right. eat pork, right. you know, which, okay, so it's okay to kill the cow, but it's not okay to kill the deer. And then it's funny because some people don't draw those con- like wait a minute yeah they're not drawing a line from uh, their their line is that burger that they're eating came from a plastic package in yeah. the grocery store you know they they're not drawing that parallel well, in, in, in in their defense i don't think they ever thought about it well, and most of them they don't want to think about it right yeah you know? i mean yeah, i guess so but when you point it out they're like well, well yeah wait a minute this is okay you know so I've had I've seen that happen. Like I've seen eyebrows raised uh, in monks, you know, mixed company about. Well, you like that hamburger, right? Yeah, well, that cow was living at one point. You know, you just had somebody else shoot it for you, type right. of deal. And uh, yeah, even may that may be like a little off color. You know, th- there's definitely a way to, <coughs> I guess, portray that in a better light. But the food component, I think, is I call it the gateway drug to hunting. Like. You can uh, make some really good food and almost make anybody a believer. Yeah, and and good food, I think, is the key there uh, because I know a lot of people that say, "Ah, I don't like venison. And it's like, uh, you know, okay, let me make it for you. Yeah, definitely. And and that's to sort of play off what you said about being fortunate, you know, that you have drawn to this point a, a pretty good career out of the outdoors and stuff. I mean, while I'm not directly involved in that, I mean, the outdoors has still shaped what I do, right? So I grew up eating a lot of venison, and my dad and my grandfather was cooking it, and, and now, you know, I teach culinary classes, and I'm big on making that venison taste as good as possible. And sometimes it's highlighting the flavors of venison. Sometimes it's hiding it to get someone used to it. It, yeah, and that's that's a good point. Um, there's a lot of people; their minds are already made up. Yep. I've I've learned this. Um, it, my neighbor actually, she doesn't like venison, and she knows, like, especially in the summertime, we do a lot of cooking over here. My friends are you know, they cook, and my brother-in-law is an executive chef, so we eat a lot and drink some too. <laughs> but um, she always is hesitant, like, oh, I know this is probably some sort of wild game, you know. Not that she's her dad's a big hunter. And she has no problem with hunting. She just would rather not eat it. So the really cool thing is uh, we go fishing as well. And she loves walleye, right? So Well, who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't <laughs> love walleye? And, I mean, her husband and uh, brother and, you know, a couple of their friends went, I think, two or three times this summer. 
I just came back from a walleye trip with my son a couple weeks ago, and she's all about the walleye. So that kind of, you know, the light bulb went off. It doesn't always have to be deer. You yeah, know, it doesn't have right. to be bear. It doesn't have to be elk. It could be walleye. It could be trout. It could be, you know, pick you know, pick yeah. your poison type of deal. Uh, and my wife is a prime example of this. Uh, you know, she didn't grow up in a hunting family. Uh, very suburban lifestyle. And, you know, basically the only venison that, that I'll make that she's, and she's tried some various recipes I've done, but the only thing she likes is tacos. And that's not, it, she still craves a beef taco, you know, yeah. from time to time. But I was fortunate enough two seasons ago to get spring turkey. Yeah. And I smoked one of the breasts, and she really liked it. And then I made turkey nuggets with, with the other half of the breast, and she really liked that. So it's, you know, while deer hunting and venison is like the big thing when it comes to hunting the hunting industry i mean that's really what drives hunting um you know wild game it's not just pigeonholed in that one thing there's so many other things out there that you can eat that people might still like right and and yes i mean in the food like i mentioned who doesn't like to eat you know i mean I, you know, you just end it there, right? Like, I love watching the cooking channel. Like, oh, me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, me too. Yeah. Like, it's so, it's really neat. And I think it, if uh, you can kind of bring that t- together and, and kind of my plan is with a lot of pictures and video, follow you know, on social media to build like a platform where hopefully that the podcast isn't just for the hunters. I want it to be for the hunters' wives, the families, even the kids at some point, you know, Um just portrayed in a little different light, if you will, and also to keep it fun. I, you know, at the end of the day, I, we can't be too serious about anything in life anymore with everything that's going on. So, let's laugh, let's have fun. I am not a expert at anything, so I'm not going to portray myself as one. So everything I say or do will be, you know, take it with a grain of salt, <laughs> if you will. But, and I love hearing you say, you know, portraying it in a different light because I, I think for far too long we've had we have hunters have been portraying ourselves in the wrong way to the non-hunting public you you look at hunting shows for the past 20 years it's all about the kill and all about you know big bucks and and now we're starting to see a rise in what i think are quality tv shows that highlight the food and highlight the experience and you know that kind of thing i mean that that i think shows more of what the common hunter is hunting for, right? You're, you're hunting for that experience. You're hunting for the food that you're going to get out of it, not to kill this 180-class buck. I mean, how many how many deer hunters are actually shooting bucks that day? Yeah, well, I actually know some of those statistics. Um, again, full of useless information, but <laughs> so you will kill let – me, let me try to get this right because I haven't thought about this in a while, but actually – Kip Adams did the research. I'm almost positive, and again, uh, you can't hold me to that. But something like less than ten percent of, of less than ten percent of the hunters will hunt their lifetime and not shoot a deer over 120 inches. Uh, and I mean, to this so point, I'm that I, I've been hunting 21 years. I'm right. one of one of those guys that has not shot a buck that big. And I need to go, b- and this will be, a, we'll do another podcast and we'll like have a second version and I'll have, be more ready with the, the data. Cause I am like a data guy, but I think it's something like 1% of the hunters kill a deer that's uh Pope and young uh, score or bigger. So 125 or bigger. I think it's less than 1%. So <coughs> exactly right. Uh, the, 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 the outdoor television, although, you know, 
I was I'm guilty of watching. Um, uh, yeah, yes. you know, yes. we we like that type of things. I think it's been its own worst enemy as far as hunter recruitment and um, for the last twenty years, like you mentioned. Basically, for the simple reason, it is a lot of big antlers, um, and it's when you start about when you talk about recruiting new hunters, it kind of portrays hunting falsely, if you will. You know, not everybody is going to have those opportunities that you may see on television, and it's a there's a learning curve to it, and there's you know, but it's I think if 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 people realize that it's entertainment then it's fine, right? It can right. continue to do as you're doing, but just understand as a new hunter, that's unrealistic mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, obviously, there's outliers and everything, so I'm sure we've probably just upset a lot of people if they're listening to this that have an outdoor uh, hunting show. We were just talking. <laughs> you're, you're never going to not offend one person. Yeah, one person's always going to be offended no matter what yeah, you Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to offend somebody, and I'm okay with that. That's the, the sky is blue. There's right. someone out there that's yeah, going to say, no, 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 it's not blue. Don't tell me that. Yeah. So back to the original question, what my podcast, you know, again, I'm kind of all over the place. But at the same time, I want to be jovial, but also serious. Um, you know, we have to do a little better job in hunter recruitment because it means so much. But we also have to be realistic about it. You know, are we, in fact, going to do a better job? You know, what does that look like? How does that happen? There's, you know, R3 uh, programs almost in every state in the country where you can recruit new hunters, and that's the state agencies are putting those on, and, and rightfully so. They have, you know, the, they, they have the money behind it. They have budgets set aside for that, uh, especially through license sales. So that stuff is great. It just needs to be – there needs to be more awareness mm -hmm. um, of what it is. Uh, I think there's probably a lot of those, you know, first – time adult adult onset hunters sitting there that don't understand what the r3 programs are they probably don't even know about they know that's what i mean so although the state agencies are equipped very well to pull off an r3 program what they're not equipped well with is marketing uh, i've not seen very many state agencies although there are a handful that do a great job with marketing but for the most part some of them do a really bad job at marketing as far as what some of the programs they have out there um even for landowners, you know, a lot of a lot of landowners are unaware of the opportunities that are there for them through the state agencies, especially on the R three side. Mm -hmm. So, <coughs> man, we're just going to try to shed light on just about everything, you know. And you know, just just to build on that R three, I mean, even the states that are doing a tremendous job with promoting their R three, they're still only going to catch a small segment of the potential hunters out there so as we were talking about on the phone this morning i mean really the way to make the biggest impact is for people like you and me that hunt to reach out to someone and say hey why don't you come with me yeah it takes a little bit of effort um you know and i've done this before with a few of my friends we've challenged each other to take a, a new person hunting every year and we've done so for the last couple of years and it's really easy to do if you just do it. Does that make sense? Like yeah. yeah. Just uh, seriously, just the, like the hardest step is that first step in actually asking somebody. Just asking somebody. And, and in your experience, and we've not even talked about this, but I've found um, school teachers have an open book, even if you're not a school teacher, but you know one, right? Or go to a school. Like if I came to you and said, Jason, you know, I'm a hunter and 
<clears throat> I want to take a kid hunting this year, but I can't find a kid. I bet in 30 seconds you could tell me uh, 10 kids that oh. you would think probably, A, have the interest, B, know they don't hunt, and C, know that they'd be willing to do what you know what I want to do. So you could set that program up. I think it's, you know, the churches. Um, it's, it's amazing to me how many people just – don't realize all they have to do is ask. You know, just put it out there. And with social media, it's a great way to do it. Yeah. There's a lot of people that have a Facebook account that use it for whatever, but all they would have to do is say, if they're a hunter, hey, you know what? I'm going to do something a little different this year. Any of my friends want to try to be a hunter? You know, and not just take them hunting. That's the There's the big difference in what I think. Of, okay, I took somebody hunting. There's a big difference in taking someone hunting and teaching somebody to become a hunter. Yep. A, a mentor, in my opinion, <coughs> should teach, be a teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have that teaching mentality. You have to be patient. You have to be understanding. And it it is something we can't expect everybody to do, but the simple numbers, let's just say the way to have the biggest impact, there's 12 million deer hunters in the country. In the next two years, if half of them become a mentor to one person, we've increased it by 6 million in two years, right? Uh, so... That's simple numbers. Even a third. I'll take a third yeah. of that, right? Yeah. So, and it could be fun. In my experience, it's been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Like, and, you know, we're sitting in my office now and we talked about, you know, I've I've probably been strict on herd management and very picky on the size of the deer I shoot and how things are done. But at the same time, I've taken new hunters hunting on my property. I'm like, I mean, you got the green light, you know, right. and that's what you have to, it's okay. It's, yeah. it, you're not going to kill all the deer. You're yeah, just, you I know, mean, <laughs> we're, I mean, we're on our property in Jefferson County. We're, we're trying to do a, a quality deer management right. protocol up there. That, I mean, that, that's the goal is to build age structure as much as we can on 70 acres. Uh, you know, this year, finally, I'm going to have uh, a friend that I met on Twitter of all places. He started hunting a couple years ago. He's from Massachusetts. He's only shot, I think, two or three deer, one mm -hmm. buck, and it was just, you know, a little spike in North Carolina. When he comes to the property, I'm not going to say you can only shoot a deer that's three and a half or older. It has to be. A, listen, the six point that he's going to be allowed to shoot is going to be the buck of the lifetime for him. So, yeah. hey, dude, have at it. You yeah. know, uh, I mean, I'm not going to restrict you from, from shooting the best buck you've ever shot just because it doesn't align with our management goals. Right. And – to even build off of that, and it just kind of dawned on me, and uh, I, um, it doesn't have to be deer. You can take people hunting for squirrels, and I think that is, I started as a hunter, as a squirrel hunter. I mean, you know, when I was 12 years old, at, at the time, you had to be 12 in Pennsylvania to become a hunter. It wasn't a mentor program, so I was chomping at the bit me too. to, you know, like, okay, and I could go squirrel hunting behind my house. You know what I mean? Like, so... You know, and and I, you know, it was probably not the right thing to do, but my parents would let me take the twenty-two on my own. You know, again, I was maybe a hundred yards behind the house, hundred fifty yards at the most, and but I thought I was in you know on some Rocky Mountain expedition mm -hmm. type of deal. But that set that fire, and you can certainly do that. And I think big game hunting, especially white-tailed deer, is a big responsibility. And I can see how intimidating somebody new to it would be, like. Hunting's one thing, okay, like, okay, I'm going to be a hunter. 
So they go hunting, and they buy everything that comes along that you need. And, again, you can do it on the cheap, but let's just say for the most part you'd spend $500, $700, whatever it may be. You can certainly do it way less than that, but I'm just throwing out some numbers. <clears throat> so you're a hunter now, and you go hunting, and then you shoot a deer, right? So now you have this animal that weighs 120, 130, 140 pounds. Now what? Right. You know, <laughs> so that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Whereas – well, let me rewind a step further. Even you buy the stuff, then you have to have a place to go. So if you're not a hunter and you want to be a hunter and you can afford to be a hunter and you've got everything in your – you have your, your car loaded up with all your hunting gear, if you don't have somewhere to go, it doesn't matter how much gear you have, right, or, <laughs> or even how much desire you have. You just can't do it. Yep. Um, so with the small game aspect, uh, it opens up a couple things, I think. It's less inspect. It's less in. Excuse me, less expensive to get involved. There's more opportunity as far as places you can go, especially with public land. There are squirrels everywhere, you know, for the most part. And it's less intimidating if you do get one, right? Like so, that question now, what do I do? Well, I could probably figure this out. It's a squirrel and YouTube, and you know, mm -hmm. so you start there, and then. Small game fair, table fair, is really good. Mm -hmm. um, just this past season, and I'm very guilty of it. I grew up small game hunting. That's how I got involved in hunting, was hunting squirrels, rabbits, and grouse. And to be honest with you, my dad, um, I, didn't, I won't say I came from a non-hunting family, but I came from a family that didn't hunt a lot. Um, my dad didn't kill his first buck until I was 16 years old, and I had started hunting bucks, and I kind of like put him on one type of deal. Um, he was a rabbit hunter. You know, he and his, my dad's side of the family would occasionally rabbit hunt, occasionally grouse hunt. I don't think I remember him shooting squirrels, but that's how I remember being introduced to hunting. You know, I can still s smell that smell. He had a, a Remington 870 16-gauge shotgun, and I can still smell that smell in my memory bank as a little kid when he would shoot at a rabbit. And I say at because he didn't, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Anyway, um, so that lit the fire in me, which then, you know, snowballed to where I'm at today. And just last year, I went s small game hunting with a friend of mine that has some beagles. And, you know, just out of the blue, it's like, you know, what, uh, late season, let's go, you know. And <coughs> we killed uh, two or three rabbits, and I brought them home, and I butchered them. And I hadn't eaten wild rabbit in, I bet, 25 years. And then – my mom would have made it, which how she made everything was the the smoke detector was basically <laughs> the uh, the 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 timer on the oven. <laughs> so a lot of our wild game growing up was really dry and you know not that good. It was just frying pan type stuff. So um, I was butchering these rabbits, you know, right here in my office, and I remember telling my wife, like, man, th this is a really delicate, good smelling meat. And if you're around cooking, you can you know when. You can look at or feel or or smell a meat uh, or any ingredient, if you will, and tell, you know, this is going to be good, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it didn't have a very strong or, you know, it was very delicate. And uh, I made them that night, you know, in a, uh, like, a gravy, cacciatore type thing. And, I mean, it was phenomenal. Like, it had, and she ate it. And, again, she comes from a non-hunting family, but she ate it and loved it. But she's made the point to say, had I not known that that was rabbit i would have never have known mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's a a, a big 
door uh, eye-opening thing that with the R3 movement, the recruiting new hunters, uh, a lot of people think, well, I'm, I need to recruit a deer hunter. There's, I mean, you can if you want, but to buy a license is you can be a rabbit hunter. You know, so if we're going to try to increase license sales, let's try to increase rabbit hunters yep. or squirrel hunters. Or um, pheasant, you know, even though we have a stalking program, they're not wild pheasants. Pennsylvania, you're I mean, still that, out there participating. You know, and that's, you know, I went through, you know, I, I was a pretty uh, serious deer hunter early on, you know, and then went to college and playing sports, you know, fell out of hunting league, still bought my license. There's only been one year I didn't uh, my appendix just about burst so that's I'll no excuse uh, well i i <laughs> in my uh th- line of thinking i had the appendix problem because i didn't buy the license that's probably actually happened, happened. The, the first weekend of uh, rifle season so Oof. i'll be buying one just to prevent any physical ailments but you know got back in when i got back into hunting it was all archery all i'm going for deer um and then one year i, I shot a buck on the first day of archery season i was like okay what do i do now Right, you know, like I, I'm done. My season's over on the mm-hmm. first day. What do I do? Um, and I have, I had two bird dogs at home that I wasn't hunting. They were just house dogs. And I was like, you know what? I'll see what they can do. And they were really good. I enjoyed pheasant hunting. And my dad loves upland game bird hunting. So now, I mean, I will literally not hunt deer for a morning or an evening, whichever I works out to hunt pheasants with my dad. Yeah, because it's a more social experience. It's not just sitting there. Even if he would come deer hunting with me, if we sit in the same stand, we're not talking. Right. You know, you're just sitting there in silence. When you're walking through a field, I mean, we're not yelling and screaming at each other, but you know, it. You can have a conversation. Yeah. You can. It, it's a more social aspect in that small game. Right, realm. and that's a really good point. The social aspect has been lost. Um, you know, looking back, how we all started in hunting, and you and I both being from Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania, one of the biggest license sales states in history, you know, if you will. Back in the 50s, when everybody went, <coughs> 50s and 60s and 70s, when they went up north to the big camps, and, you know, it was a very, it, deer hunting was very social. Mm-hmm. And then there became less deer and less camps, and then antler restrictions and so forth and so on. But even with the outdoor channel and then big deer became a thing. You know, I can specifically remember when a 140 inch deer was a big deer, you know, which it's, uh, it always is a big deer, but now, I mean, people shoot 180 and 200 inch deer like they're just falling out of the sky. I don't know how they do it, you know, but it became less social because the interest level of managing for big deer, shooting these big trophy class animals, uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. But again, from a recruitment standpoint, I really think that the social aspect brings a lot to the table. Like you say, pheasant hunting or sharing a duck blind, mm-hmm. um, squirrel hunting. And, you know, my son is a perfect example, my 13-year-old. Um, I've forced him to sit in a blind and be quiet. And he just does it like, this is not fun. So I have a friend um, that he loves hunting with because he doesn't like to be quiet at all. He just likes to, you know, it's like romper room when those two are <laughs> together. So he'll always say, I'll say, you know, hey, we're going to hunt this weekend. He's like, well, is Brad going? Well, why is he, why, can I go with Brad? Well, why do you want to go with Brad? Well, I know why he wants to go with Brad because they're not hunting at all. They're goofing off. You know what I mean? So, but that's okay. Like, and I need to learn as a parent, like, that's okay. Yeah. They need to goof off, right? Like, but it's interesting to me because that's actually – I'm a social person. Like I'm, I like to laugh and have fun with my friends, 
And when I started hunting, it's what we did. Like, we were not serious hunters at all. We were just having a good time. And then I've somehow evolved, okay? And it's my fault that I've kind of done, done what, you know, evolved to where I'm at, and I've kind of got away from that. And I think that that is a really good aspect or, or a good point, the social aspect that's, that's been lost in, in that romance of, of in our hunting heritage, the camps, um, you know, the camp atmosphere, there's there's still plenty of them out there, but not like it used to be. And, I mean, we talked earlier, I mean, that I do 90% of my hunting up in my cabin. And yeah. in archer season, it's only me and my uncle. We're the only two that, uh, my dad might come up for a weekend to hang out. My grandfather might come up, but we're the only two hunting. Right. And we're hunting separately. You know, he's hunting one part of the property, I'm hunting another. We're quiet, we're not. But even the social aspect of coming back to that one place, and talking about what you saw, what encounters you had, it, you know, I saw a bobcat. I, you know, just talking about what went on in, in that day, even that social aspect is important. Yeah. Where, you know, if you're just hunting out your back door and you're just going home, you know, you know, my wife's wonderful. She listens to my hunting stories, mm-hmm. but she doesn't care like another hunter. Yeah, she, she's probably like my wife. She just rolls her eyes as you're No, nah, she doesn't roll her She listens no, intently. You, she's so she's great. Y- we're also newly married, uh, yeah. so that might have something that's, to do with That's it, all going to change. She's <laughs> just going to start rolling her eyes and be like, whatever. She, she no, she's happy for you, trust me, but oh, yeah. she just could care less. Yeah, <laughs> I, t- I give her credit for yeah. listening to me, but it's not the same back and forth social that you get with uh, someone that was actually out hunting that same day. Right, and see, I go back and forth with this, um, the social aspect, because although I say, you know, man, I'd love to get back to that hunting camp and atmosphere environment, but... It is gone that physical aspect, but it's. I think it's kind of been replaced with social media because mm-hmm. we b- now belong to all of these groups. We can seek out a Facebook group of, you name it. You know, you can find a group of like-minded individuals. And also, another thing, and I find myself doing it, kind of like the light bulb went off in my head when you know I sit in tree stands and a lot of things come to me, and I was one day thinking about. Man, I miss hunting camp, right? Like we don't, no, people don't go to camp anymore, and that's a big problem. We need to get back to that. And then my phone dinged, and then it dinged again, then dinged again. And three of my buddies who were hunting that day had texted me within five minutes, and I was like, "Well, we have like virtual camps now, because mm-hmm. this is the same thing." Like you just said, when you come back to camp, you talk about what you saw. It's a live document. We're talking about what we see, what's going on instantly yep. now because we have cell phones in a tree stand or social media in a tree stand. <laughs> so, I mean, I have a small group of friends that, I mean, we bust on each other. Like you, it's probably borderline illegal. Some of the <laughs> things that we talk, talk, the way we talk to each other, you could be arrested for. But at the same time, it's, I've laughed so hard in tree stands because some of the text messages I get, and then we have group text in, it is just nonstop, and that's fun, right? So, yeah, I kind of go back and forth where, man, I'd love to have a camp or get back to that camp atmosphere. It'd be great for kids, and I want everybody to experience a camp like like I did when I was a kid. And then I'm like, this is pretty cool too. Yeah, like yeah. I, these group texts and this, I mean, people say what they want about Facebook, and most macho-type guys are like, yeah, I don't know facebook but yet they're checking their facebook Mm -hmm. you know and they belong to some you know goofy group of whatever like-minded people and that's fine and but it is good it's cool right i mean there's a lot of downside to that too but there's some good just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad and that's i think the key for for us is 
trying to figure out how to make that difference work in the same in the same way, have the same end result, but you go about it a little bit different, you know. Yeah, and social media again, you know, back to we were talking about how to recruit a new hunter, you know, um, it's easy of an ask and it's interactive, it's engaging, there's pictures, you can put video. So a lot of aspects, it may be even way better than camp. You know, I, f- I feel bad for the people that may get into hunting and never, like fast forward, okay, they, they became a hunter because they met somebody on social media or through work or through church or wherever it may have been, and now they're addicted to it. Like, you know, they're like you and I, mm-hmm. and they've never went to camp. You know I mean? I feel bad for that, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, – Hunting is never going to be the way it was before because there are no camps, you know. And I hear that a lot, like, oh, it's just different now. People don't do that. Well, they, do, they don't do that specifically, but they do other things that we never did. That our grandparents didn't have social media. They right. weren't texting anybody. Right. You know. So, yeah, we could go around and around for, that for a long time on R3 stuff for sure. So that's, uh, that's an area of focus of the podcast. Um, I have a history with archery. That's going to be an area of focus as well. That that I think is the the most intriguing part for me personally to listen to. Just because I mean, I'm like you. Uh, started shooting archery when I was eight nine years old. Um, I never got into real competitive. I, I shot in one competitive shoot when I was I think thirteen, twelve or thirteen, and got third place. But you know, it wait a minute, was there four people there? three? Uh, I think there was five. Oh, I think there was five. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's always, for me, you know, shooting indoor leagues, things like that, local leagues, it, it, it's the, it's always been to hone my skills with my hunting setup so that I'm more efficient when I'm in the woods. Um, give me a reason to, to shoot my bow, things like that. Um, but just the, I'm excited to hopefully hear some, some of the technical part of it because, I mean, if something's going wrong, if I can't figure something out, I'm going to the bow shop. You know, I'm right. not doing the work myself, but I would like to do some of the tuning myself to try to figure some of that stuff out myself. So, um, you know, being able to to learn that on a podcast, I think that would be that'd be great. Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to bring to the table. And there's a lot of it out there with YouTube. I mean, being a, a previous pro shop owner is the first thing I would tell you is find your local pro shop, right? Because they're gonna there's gonna be vast amounts of knowledge there, <coughs> whether it be people who own it or work there or even customers, you know. There's always somebody hanging around a bow mm-hmm. shop, trust me. I've had you know, most of my uh underachiever friends hung out of my bow shop. <laughs> <laughs> um but anyway if you you know with with social media in the day and age of technology and also internet sales, right? So you can buy just virtually anything you want on the internet now and have it shipped to your door. Yep. There's no reason why you shouldn't be like the DIYer, right? Do-it-yourself type of guy when it comes to bow maintenance, bow setup, uh, equipment. You know, you can buy, sell, and trade on Facebook equipment. You know, there's plenty of forums out there uh, with product, with information. So why not share some of that? And I've worked on literally thousands of bows, Um it's not that difficult. You know, I mean, there are some things I wouldn't recommend till you have a pretty good handle on what's going on. You know, maybe let your pro shop do that or, or, or find one of your buddies that knows what he's doing type of deal. But for the most part, especially with a hunting bow, tying in a peep, setting a rest, uh, the simple stuff, you know, you can get into fairly cheap, you know, f- buy a, a press for three, $400, um, 
you know, get a good press and you can just slowly add equipment to your inventory and you know before you know it it looks like my office here and <laughs> <laughs> you have a little bit of everything going on yeah it's just uh, i'm i'm one of those people no matter no matter what the information is i want to hear it from as many people as possible you know, because just because you hear, you know, well, this with guy social says, media, you certainly will. Right? They, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> another avenue of, of hearing someone else talking about it. I mean, that's that's going to um, add to my knowledge base and, and, as you said, you know, useless knowledge that my that some of my friends and family don't really care about. But I, you know, I just want to soak that stuff up in a sponge. So, give me another avenue. Give me yeah. more information. And and that's the thing too with anything. Like I play golf. Like. Um, you can teach, you know, a fundamentally sound golf swing, and that's probably the best way to teach it. But there also there are golfers out there that have a swing like Arnold Palmer, which wasn't really fundamentally sound. Now, I guess if you got real technical, you know, if you put the club face square on the ball, when it, I mean, it's going to go straight type of deal. So how it got there, as long as it was duplicated, doesn't really matter. And that's the same thing with archery. You know, I've I've instructed. Um, in my shooting days, I, I give a lot of instruction, and I would tell people that maybe didn't have the best fundamentals, like if they, you know, maybe they were shooting a little too long of a draw length or too short of a draw length, um, which is technical stuff that a lot of people would say you need to shoot the correct draw length. And for the most part, I would agree, except those outliers. With everything I've found in life, there's always outliers. Oh, and you'll yeah. probably hear me say that a ton because I've been an outlier my whole life. Um, if you can do it consistently the same every time, I probably wouldn't change it. But if you're not, if you're having an issue with consistency, doing it consistently, uh, I would change it. But I, you know, I just can't say, you know, hey, change what you're doing because on paper it doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, in all the bows I've worked on in my life and through my bow shop, I did find that I would bet. 90% of the archers out there shoot too long of a draw length for the most, you know, they were set up improperly a long time ago and they've just ran with it. Now, mm -hmm. has it affected their bow hunting? Probably not. Maybe, you know, but at the end of the day, they're not shooting, you know, 50, 60 yards at deer, you know, or anything. Right. Um, so most, I think the Pope and Young keeps track of the data. And I think the last time I looked, the average shot in the Pope and Young record books is like 18 yards, mm -hmm. you know, or on a white-tailed deer. So if you're hunting from a, a tree stand in the east, predominantly in the east, yes. so it's wooded area, you know, it's not the west or the midwest. Um, a lot of people hunt the midwest, but not near as many as hunt Pennsylvania, Michigan, mm -hmm. New Jersey, Delaware, you know, all the east coast type stuff. So chances are the shots are thir 25 yards and in. And, uh, you know, if, if that's that's the case, you can get away with an inch long of a draw or an inch short of a draw or maybe a little bit too much poundage and stuff like that. So, but if you want to be better, okay, if you want to improve yourself, and this would be, you know, somebody that just makes their mind up, like, how do I get better? Then, yeah, I would, I would you know, I tell you, we should be more technical in what you're doing here. Yeah, I mean, I mean it just for me, I mean, I'm shooting – 50, 60 yards practice just to try to hone my skills. But if the deer's over 30 yards, I'm not shooting. Yeah, it, long it, that, that, that's the limit I put on myself. I, one time I shot at a deer at 40 yards, and I'm never going to do that again. Yeah, long-range practice is some of the best practice because it will certainly magnify your mistakes. You Big know. time. Uh, I was just telling you earlier, I, I, sh I can shoot 100 yards out of my office right here. Um, 
I, it's funny for the people that know me, you know, know me well, know I've been a competitive archer and obviously a big bow. And I get that question a lot. It's like, well, how far do you shoot deer? You know? And like, I laugh, like, it's funny in my mind. I'm like, as a bow hunter, I want to see how close I can mm-hmm. get to one, not how far away I can get and still hit it. Right? Like, right. I want to see how close I can get to it. So, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know how many deer I've killed, but 98 percent of them, I bet, have been under 20 yards. I mean, I've killed a handful with a recurve. You know, so, um, and that's I, in my mind. Again, this is personal, but I think that's how it should be. You yeah. know, I get the western. Right. I'm not talking about. Right. And I get a lot of that too. You know, well, uh, elk hunt, I got to shoot 70 yards. Well, that's different. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, the, different the, scenario. The terrain allows for that, but for the most part, where whitetail deer live, predominantly, you know, <coughs> east of the Rocky Mountains, uh, the terrain isn't going to allow for 70, 80 yard shots. It's going to be something you know up close and personal. So, practice long range. And shoot short range, you know, aim small, miss small. Yeah, and I mean, I want to be the most effective hunter I can be. Well, my most effective shot's going to be closer. Closer it is, the more effective that shot placement's going to be, the more effective the end result's going to be. You know, there's just, there's a lot that can go wrong at longer distances, you know, in that situation. And and for, you know, again, as I mentioned in another episode, but then, you know, I always scratch my head, like, where's, we turn from, hunters to snipers and if you take it like from a bow hunter okay what you know i can it can be a bow hunter and shoot effectively at 40 or 50 yards and then a gun hunter you know out of the box now you have rifles that'll shoot you know a thousand yards Mm -hmm. out of the box and i know guys that are killing elk with custom guns at 1800 yards and i get it that takes skill but Again, this will probably ruffle some feathers, but at some point you start questioning, like, where does it become fair chase? Mm-hmm. You know, but then again, I could argue trail cameras. Is that really fair? Yeah, I mean, right. you so you just kind of that whole, but it's fun discussion. Mm-hmm. Like, I like discussing that with my friends because I know that, like, oh, I shoot 1,800 yards. You can't do that. You're right. I can't, you know, but I mean, that poor elk doesn't know he just got, you know, you were. 16 miles away when you right. shot it, <laughs> you know, whatever it equates to. So, you know, and then the, the I get a ton of that in, in hunting season. I get a ton of messages about efficiency, you know, how far how far will my bow sh- effectively kill a deer? Well, I, I don't know. How, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. Well, I, I need a lot of information yeah. about your bow and then <laughs> about you. Yeah. And, you know, and, there, yeah, there's – and that's w- that's one of the things I love about hunting is you know that there's no there's very little black and white answers. It's a lot of hunt your own hunt, and you know as long as you're within the law, right? Is what of what that state is. Well, there's there's nothing wrong with it. Well, uh, that's a really good point. There's a l- not very many black and and man, you can operate out of the gray area forever. You know, there's so many variables to so many different things. Uh, being, you know, around white-tailed deer and especially hunting mature deer like I have and and going to sports shows and listening to scenarios and I've heard every hunting story under the sun, you know, type of deal. And that's a great point. There's so many different variables to every set of stories or circumstances. Like, why did it work out this way? Well, 
man, I don't, it could have been a multitude of things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, same thing with archery equipment. The variables are just, there is no black and white. Yeah. Do, for the most part, man, do what makes you happy and fun. Keep it fun and have a good time with it and know nothing is going to be perfect. I mean, the last two archery, archery deer I've shot, both of them double lung, good, you know, good shots. Mm-hmm. One ran 30 yards and fell over. The other one ran 300 yards. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Y- there's no rhyme or reason for, for either of those. There's something in those scenarios caused that to happen. Just this past year, I had two close friends of mine shoot deer with archery equipment. Um, both of them, very experienced hunters, have killed you know, some really nice deer. Uh, one was in Ohio and the other was in Pennsylvania. Both deer were over 150. <coughs> this is crazy how it happened, but the, the I think it was two days apart. It was in November. Um, so my one buddy you know, texted me, you know, and he was one of the guys that texts all the time, you know, just 10 ringed a good buck, something like that. You know, chip shot type of deal, 25 mm-hmm. yards. Four hours later, I hadn't heard from him, and I was like, he's, just lo- he's lost this deer. I know him. Like if he'd have found it, and then you know he he's ringing my phone off the hook, and if he doesn't find it, I I have to chase him down, you know. So I call him, like, what's the deal? He's like, I I jumped it like three times, you know. I this I don't understand it. I know I hit it perfect. I'm like, you obviously didn't hit it perfect every day, right? Like we've been down that road. Um. He's like, dude, I'm telling you, you know, I ten ring this thing. I can't understand. So. I, he was telling me this, the, the story of jumping it, and I think he had jumped it three or four times, and the last time it was getting close to dark, and he was just like, you know, I'm going to back out here. I'm like, that deer, I think you're going to find it. You know, I felt very confident in that, and he did. He found it the next morning, and he sent me a picture of where he hit it. It was literally a 10 ring, you know, on a, on a, a 3D-type target. Like, I have no idea why that that deer lived like it did. That just this, there are variables and everything. Now, I guess I could speculate that maybe it was exhaling at the time and its lungs were deflated. Um, You know, I'm not a a biologist and Mm -hmm. I don't, but I've been around and like, I think that that possibly could have happened. I don't know though. I mean, he, when, you know, when, when he looked at where he hit it, clipped one lung, but like where you look where the arrow entered and exit should have hit both of them. So, Mm -hmm. That kind of makes sense. And then literally two days later, another friend of mine, he texts me in a group text, and he was like, you know, I shot a big buck yesterday, and I'm still tracking it. He had given up. Um, he just lo- he just shot, you know what, I lost this deer. He ran out of blood, you know, did everything you're supposed to do, and starts hunting again, and literally shot the deer the next, th- the two days later, a mile and a half from where he shot it the first time, and the arrow holes were about two inches apart. Jeez. Yeah. So, and he and it's those are one of those stories where, had you told it to me and I didn't know the guy, I'd be like, "Come on, yeah, yeah. oh, are you serious? Like, you expect me to believe that?" You know. And he said the same thing. He's like, "If you would have told me this story, I would be like, there is no way. I've been hunting deer my whole life, you know, mm-hmm. but it literally happened to him." Again, he shot that deer at 18 yards, and he's a tournament archer. I mean, he can make 18-yard shots all day long, and he killed it two days later, a mile and a half away. That's 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 crazy. That just everything about 
deer just it's fascinating it is kind of fascinating and uh, i'm loaded with those types of stories uh, but <laughs> so that's you know we'll get into a lot of that i guess on a podcast that, that's good uh, i mean it, like you said i mean there's just so there are so many variables that causes every hunting story to be completely different yeah in uh, some way or another they're they're different you can hunt the same stand and shoot a deer out of the same stand six years in a row, every single part of that story is going to be different other than I was in this stand and I shot the deer. Right. And, you know, those variables, I spent some uh, more of my <coughs> my young life, I spent way too much time studying things that didn't matter. <laughs> if my <laughs> Again, if you went back to my mom, like when I should have been worried about college, I was worried about what wind – currents and thermals and wind direction did for hunting so i did a lot of uh spent a lot of time learning useless stuff and um one of the things i learned if you just mentioned hunting you know out of the same tree stand just because it's physically in the same spot it will do so many different things not from day to day even but from hour to hour Mm -hmm. given time of day with uh rising thermals falling thermals wind speed wind direction and terrain, um, your air currents change. Uh, just the wind can switch in 15 minutes. Now with our, again, back to technology, now with our weather apps, mm-hmm. like I can study the wind. I can sit in a stand and you can do the hour by hour thing on some of the weather apps and it'll say, you know, from one to two, it's going to switch from north to, you know, west, whatever. And it does, mm-hmm. right? Like, and it, so that can effectively, basically, your stand still in the same physical spot, but it has just changed everything. And when you start talking about a deer's nose, that's a whole other useless information I'm full of, but their olfactory sensors, you know, humans have somewhere around 5 million. A deer has somewhere around 300 million, you know. So that little bit of wind change changes everything. So those variables. And, <clears throat> again, back to going to shows. and <laughs> Listen, I, I tell a funny story. Like, I've listened to so many hunting stories at – like sports shows that I feel like some of them are like, like one guy would come through with a story and always a picture on the phone. And it's always a nice buck. This is a little bit sidetracked. And I, they always say, it seems like they always say, and that's not the big one. It's like, man, they get bigger. <laughs> like, <laughs> always, you know, somebody will flip out their phone and, and, and it'll be this, you know, this big, let me show you this big buck I got. And say, like, man, that is a really nice buck. He said, you should have seen the one he was with. <laughs> it's like, why didn't you shoot that yeah. one? Then? You know, but anyway, and I always end up they telling these stories about, you know, I don't understand, you know, he was coming right my way and, you know, the wind was going from him to me and everything was perfect, but out of the blue it turned inside out and it's gone, you know. Again, those are those variables that change everything. And if you give me the uh, what time of day, rising, th- uh, rising thermals, falling firm thermals, wind speed in relation to the terrain, what a lot of people don't realize when I used to do those studies, uh, I would build like little fires in the tree stand. And <coughs> with the terrain, uh, a, a wind out of the east could go along a ridge, and there could be a, a rock outcropping or a group of trees, and that that wind would take it and hit those trees, and it would start eddying, and that basically perpetual motion for a certain time, just like water in a stream, you know how it'll eddy, mm-hmm. and it can actually go up current for a little bit, and then eventually the 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 big current will take over, but an eddy will go upstream for a little ways and then come back down. And th- my smoke and some of my tree stands would eddy back to where I were. Again, y- you know, if a buck w- or a deer would be 
uh, upwind of me, my scent would end up there. You would scratch your head like, how is this happening, right? right? And if you didn't have that, if you didn't see the smoke, mm-hmm. you wouldn't understand it. And if you didn't, weren't able to put all that together with terrain, especially growing up where you and I did, so I hunted very hilly areas, very mountainous mm-hmm. regions. And I learned quickly when I started hunting mature deer that you needed to understand that, yeah. right? It, and if you didn't, you were going to get, you would have those instances like, these things can just think like no other. You know, how do they oh, know yeah. I'm sitting here, right. you know? Right. But if it's not... I do think they have a little bit of a sixth sense as they get older, but for the most part, I think that they're just so keen, mm-hmm. right? Their survival instincts as they get older, coupled with what Mother Nature gave them as far as senses, eyesight, hearing, and smelling, plus they live there. We just enter their world for about five or six weeks a year right. and are very novices when it comes to understanding what's going on in their environment. Uh, they just figure things out a lot, a lot faster. Yeah, I mean, there's been... There's been days where I've been in tree stand. I know the wind's gonna, because I hunt the same prop. I've hunted the same property for 20 years. I know pretty well, you know, how the when the wind's blowing this way, you know, how that's gonna interact with the ridges and the benches that are on our property. I've gotten out of one tree stand, moved 75 or 100 yards to a different tree stand, just mm-hmm. because the wind's gonna change, yeah. and I know that in this spot. It's not going to be any good. Yeah. But just over there, because of the way the wind goes over along that ridge, it's a better spot. Yeah. And back to the social aspect, uh, a good friend of mine that I grew up with hunting, he and I had a lease in Ohio. And two years ago, we were both sitting there on November 16th, and (coughs) the wind was the wrong way. We actually ended up giving up the lease because – it was in a really good spot, but set up extremely wrong for how you had to enter and exit. Like, so you basically parked on the southwest corner. Predominantly, the winds were mm-hmm. out of the west southwest, so you had to park on the southwest corner. Basically, put it what I would call put a deer drive on to get to the north side to hunt, and then sit there and expect everything you just ran like you you'd walk through the cover type of deal, and then sit there and be like waiting for the deer to come back, mm-hmm. you know, and. He texted me. We were both on vacation, and, and we were hunting. I mean, we were doing everything the best we could. We we had no access. It was basically landlocked, so we couldn't get in another way. Um, I knew sitting in a tree stand, like, my statistically, the odds of me seeing a mature deer were going down drastically because I was parking in the wrong spot. I had to walk through cover to get where I was hunting. So that means basically everything from where I parked to where I, I was hunting I call, I just drove it off. Mm -hmm. But it is November and anything can happen, so I would sit in a stand, but I knew if it's going to happen, it's going to have to come from the north, right, because that's basically what you would call the quote-unquote the virgin area. I haven't destroyed that yet with my scent and, you know, all the noise I was making, getting in and out and everything. So those statistically, I'm like, I've got probably less than a 10% chance of a deer here. And he texted me, and he said, hunting was a lot more fun when we didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) 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 <laughs> like he was like because we're not going to shoot deer here and i was like he's right like yeah maybe a young deer but we were we had leased ground in ohio to shoot you know we had four and a half and five and a half year old deer on camera that we wanted to kill and that's mm-hmm. what we were going after but you know it wasn't going to happen and it didn't happen you know and we knew it and, he, and i think of that when i you know reasons for the podcast like man you have to keep it fun right like we used to have so much fun 
now we have this vast understanding of what's going on, and it's not fun. Not that it wasn't fun, but it was just, it was like, this is why are we doing this, you yeah. know? And um, that's a big question that I would like to ask a lot of the, the people out there, like, why did you hunt, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, the, the why is answers a lot of things, and it's different for everybody, you know, it, as it should be. Yeah, and, and it evolves. And it always evolves. Always evolving. Yeah. And, and that's not, I mean, I talked to, to Robbie on my podcast, Robbie Kroger mm-hmm. on my podcast, um, the Blood Origins, and, you know, he, he wants me to answer that question, you know, and it, it's it's tough because it, it just evolves so much. And, and trying to, like, trying to condense it down to just one reason, you, you can't do it. There, you there's it, It's just such a broad topic. See, only, and I've challenged myself with that question. Why do I hunt? And you're right, I can't answer it other than it's just who I am, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's just what I do. I don't, I don't know. But I think the best way I answered it for myself was I could never imagine not hunting. So, like, I don't know why I hunt, but I cannot imagine a fall not hunting. Mm-hmm. So... It doesn't matter why I hunt. It's just I know I'm not ever going to want to not do it. Right. You know what I mean? And yep. that's the answer for me. I don't – I'm not sure why, you know. I really don't I, – hopefully I, through all this discussion and the engagement that I plan on having, maybe I can figure that out. Well, and, you know, that makes me think of my 83-year-old grandfather, you know, that he still hunts. Yeah. He, he only hunts maybe two, three days a year. But – Come hunting season, it's it's time to hunt. Right, you know, it, it's time to go out and, and sit in a tree stand and. You know, part of me thinks that, uh, again, I've thought about it way too much. But part of me thinks I, or wonder, like, is it, is it not something genetically in us from, you know, our caveman days when you had to hunt, right? Like, is it like when, uh, nature knows whatever. Nature knows when it's breeding season. Nature knows when storms coming. Nature. Do, do we as humans, like maybe some of us or not all of us, maybe it's slowly being bred out of us, but maybe some of us, especially me, do we as humans just know that in the fall it's time to harvest animals for winter? Like I don't – could be, right? Yeah, I, 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 really th- I really think there's something innate in me that draws me to this activity of, of going out to hunt for I, the animals. I think, it, I think so too, and I – Kind of did a, like a little bit of a test, and and I've talked to a lot of different people about it, and especially with kids. But one of my friends made a really good point one time, and he said, "It is in us to just be hunters." And how I know this is, did you ever teach your kids to play hide and seek, or how to play hide and seek? And you don't, right? You don't sit down with your kids and be like, "Okay, kids, you're three years old now, and I'm going to show you the funnest <laughs> game ever. It's called hide and seek." You don't teach your kids that. They just know how to do it, right? right. Like which they just, which is essentially the same. It's the same. same it's thing. Same th- basic it's concept. The earliest form of hunting in a ki- in a child, I would think, mm-hmm. would be hide and seek, right? Like, if 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 our children, you know, were again rewind the clock five hundred years, you know, our kids then just instinctively seeked out an animal to feed and clothe them, right? So over time. Has that evolved to where they're just doing it to each other for that satisfaction that you and I get as hunters, right? Mm-hmm. They're fulfilling that satis- that that need, whatever it's undescribable, I think, as a young child to just seek something out. And it may be a brother or a sister or a friend or a neighbor. 
but it really dawned on me. I've never seen a parent teach someone, Mm-mm. a child, to, to, to play hide-and-seek. No, me either. Uh, but every kid. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, mean kid wants to I don't know if it's everyone, but I'm not. I don't know if I know. I mean, uh, we should do a poll and see. <laughs> and we should start asking our listeners, like, does your kid know how to play hide and seek? And if not, you're a really bad parent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> but I, I've not seen. I, I I would speculate that most kids definitely have played hide and seek at some point, and it wasn't taught to them. Yeah, I. I, I like I said, I, I it's definitely something innate. It's something in me that just drives me to want to do it. Now I, I do think I think it's there all the time in everyone. I think we have with the way that society has molded us, made it to where you're saying it's a fall. Every fall you feel because you know that's when it is. You know, that that's when we're allowed to go out as a society to hunt. But I mean Right. We're yeah, it's we're, we're in the middle of summer. If if I was allowed, I would probably go hunt this evening. Something, yeah. I mean, well, we're constantly evolving as uh, evolving as humans. Like it's just you're just constantly evolving. So it is slowly we're evolving away from it because it's not necessary anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you don't have to be a hunter. You don't have to be. You don't have to procure your own food or clothing, right? So I would speculate. And, I mean, it may be 100 or 200 years. I don't know, but eventually it will be less and less of that. It would only make sense, you know. Um, just some as, as some of the biologists say that elk bugle less now because of wolves. Right. They're evolving to become more quiet because they know it gives up their position. So it would only make sense that that's happening to humans because this is not ne- it's, a, it's a survival instinct that's not needed anymore. Mm-hmm. We can buy our food. But at the same time, if we just look at everything happened with COVID, meat shortages – you know, I, I don't know a single hunter that was successful in the la- within the last two years that was really that worried about a meat shortage at the grocery store. I wasn't. Yeah. I, had, I had a freezer, you know, full of meat. So I- while it's not necessary, it still sort of is, right? For I mean, not to it the extent that it used to be just for pure survival, but – well, I mean, it is from our perspective, but there are plenty of people out there that aren't hunters that they're yeah. not going to starve to death. Right. So it's not necessary. Like, they don't have to learn how to be a hunter, but it did definitely put some focus on people mm-hmm. who were, right? Like, yep. you know, uh, you know, I saw the, the Facebook post, oh, yeah. just, you know, like, oh, yeah. look at my freezer. Right. You know, you should have been a hunter type of deal. Um, but I think the COVID definitely changed a lot of people's way of thinking. It, it really showed... It brought to light a lot of weaknesses in business and probably in personal lives, mm-hmm. um, which we're only going to get better from. You know, when you expose your weaknesses, you usually learn from those. Yep. Uh, th- and that COVID certainly has done that. Yeah, I, 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 am, I feel as though I'm an, an eternal optimist. So uh, you already had a, this little bit of that locavore movement, right? People want to eat a little more locally. They don't want to be contributing to factory farms, things like that. So that was already sort of an undercurrent going on. And now you have COVID, right, that happened and it changed everything. And like you said, exposed some weaknesses. Hey, maybe that sort of pushes more people into the hunting space. And and like you said, not necessarily for deer. Maybe it's for pheasants. Maybe it's squirrel or turkey or, you know, even if they only go out for one thing. Well, outdoor recreation was at a 500% increase a during COVID. Huge yeah, increase, tents and kayaks. Right. I mean, you know, people were like, we, you know, the only thing we can do is go outside and be social, socially distant from each other. So I'm going to go buy a kayak or I'm going to go buy a tent. 
And you know, to, in today's world, this podcast is a perfect example. Information is just everywhere you everywhere. turn. You can learn how to do anything you want. You know, so it only made perfect sense for that to happen. And I would speculate. I, I'm curious to see. I mean, in Pennsylvania right now, we're just buying our new hunting license. And mm-hmm. not everybody will have bought them, you know. But I'm curious to see, is this going to be a, a year for a big uptick? Or on the other side, will people be worried because maybe they didn't have the income or they're not so secure financially as they once were in their job, and maybe they tighten the belt a little bit. So, and you know, I don't, I've not looked into that at all, but I'm curious in my in the back of my mind how that's going to play out. Well, and with our turkey season in Pennsylvania being in the month of May, you know, being a, a late season really compared to the majority of spring turkeys for the country, like I'm curious as to what license sales were like in March and April. Yeah, people if who if didn't buy a license are like, you know what, I'm going to get a like, license. You know what, I have time now. I'm, I'm working right. from home or I'm not working. Like, hey, I might as well go turkey hunting. Right. And some of those people, most of those people, I'm sure, were probably the reactivated hunter, right? They might not have hunted. But I'm curious, like, did we see a greater increase in license sales in the spring than we normally do? Um, you know, we're fishing license sales. Did, did that go up, you know, from – from the whole pandemic and, and things like that. I'm curious. And that would be easy enough to find out. And uh, yeah. And, and that's something where I'd like to see the Fish and Boat Commission and the Game Commission release those numbers. Right. Did this have a positive impact on yeah. the outdoor industry? I mean, o- honestly, I, I turkey hunted a lot, and I remember I remember saying to myself, or thinking to myself, there seems to be a lot more hunters out mm-hmm. um, because everybody was I passed a lot work. on the yeah. road, moving from spot to spot. And, I mean, I hunted more days. I'm not a avid spring turkey hunter. Um, really just started getting into it the last couple of years because I always played baseball and could never had time to go because that was when our season was. And, I mean, I hunted more days this spring than I have for probably the last four years total. Yeah. Because you I was time. fortunate enough to work from home and I had time. So, hey, I'm going to go sit in the woods for at least a couple hours in the morning. Right. It might not be an all-day hunt, but at least some – know, get out there, try to wake up with the woods and see yeah. what's out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we covered it. Covered a lot. And, yeah, so, again, I could go. <laughs> we covered a lot, but we haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I'm really glad to do this. I'm ex- exciting part of my life, I guess. Um, it's a new beginnings for me. So, you know, reach out. I, I want to be engaging. Um <coughs> be able to find me on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, I'm going to do a lot of social media posts because that seems to be the thing to do. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we do these that's days. That's what we do these days. <laughs> so hopefully we gain some listeners from it and we start maybe changing a little bit of perspective. I hope so. That yeah. I mean, that's that's our goal. Right. Serve the wild, you know, try to get information out there and educate and try to – change some hearts and minds and get people interested if nothing else yeah and you know it's not going to be all about hey how how you've been doing is wrong you know we're going to have some fun with it too i'm going to in hunting season we're going to talk about hunting and fishing season we're going to talk about fishing when we're cooking we're going to talk about cooking you know i mean i have some uh some really good guests lined up i think hopefully they all come through it's good yeah thank you yeah thanks all right man That'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Ryan first and foremost for coming on. 
like I said in the intro, he is just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he has so many ideas, uh, so many things for all, that, that he knows from experience in the industry uh, that is just unbelievable. I, I can't even imagine uh, being that knowledgeable about a subject. Uh, it, it really is unexpected <laughs> and, and awesome to just sit back and listen to him. Uh, what I need from all of you is to subscribe. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, the Conservation Unfiltered podcast, uh, you need to also go ahead and subscribe to his podcast. As a reminder, it's the Ryan Fior podcast. Go ahead and search for that. And share our podcast with your friends. That is by far the way that uh, we seem to be making the biggest impact is by each of you listeners sharing this podcast. Uh, podcast and the fact that you listen with your friends and your family so word of mouth is without a doubt our best promotional tool so if we could get a little help from you uh, and have a little bit of that word of mouth spread i would really appreciate it next week we're going to have another knowledgeable guy on so uh, be looking for that Uh, and just real quick I, i want to apologize for uh, the delay and some episodes here for over the last month, but uh, we here at Conserve the Wild are working on a new project uh, that has really devoted all of our attention uh, for the past month. So uh, you'll be hearing more about that in a couple weeks and uh, seeing more about that in a couple weeks. So just one more way to get some content uh, and for you to be excited about it. Until next week, stay wild. Mm-hmm.